Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the word of the Lord. Scholars know that Matthew and Luke had Mark's gospel right in front of them because those two followed the basic outline provided by Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel was first. It is briefest of the four. However, both Matthew and Luke decide that Mark has left out some things that needed to have been told. And so right at the beginning, Luke talks about two annunciations, one to an old woman who has a very old husband who's been trying forever to have a child and without success. And God tells this woman, Elizabeth, you are going to have a baby. And this baby you will name John. And then comes the visit to Mary. Mary, you're about to have a baby. I've never been with a man. You're about to have a baby, and you will name him Jesus. Now, Matthew decides there's another story that needs to be told, and his story is about the Magi, about people who follow unusual happenings in the heavens, who see a very bright light and follow it all the way to a little place called Bethlehem where they behold a child. They see something very significant in this baby and they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then Matthew and Luke jump right back to Mark's outline. They tell the same things that Mark has already told. And that is that Jesus left his home up in Galilee and went about 90 miles south to be baptized in the Jordan by John. After Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness, which means desert. In this very sparse place down near the Dead Sea, he was encountered by the Satan, the liar, the deceiver, the word literally means in Greek, uh, that kept telling him he should do this, do that, make himself extra important. And over and again, he refuted the tempter, the liar, the deceiver. And he goes back home. And then when John has been arrested, Jesus comes back and begins his own public ministry first around the Sea of Galilee. So we come to this text today, and I've underlined four things for us to consider. The first thing, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, Matthew writes. Well, that's not what he wrote. It's the way your translators have translated. Now, remember what a difficult job translators have. They're trying to be accurate, and they're trying to be readable. Accurate and readable. So, this is exactly what happened to John. He was arrested because he had accused the king of taking his brother's wife and now living with her as his own. And they got very upset about that, particularly the wife, now married to her first husband's brother, and so they arrested John. But that's not what the word is here. 
And it's important to Matthew, I believe, for us to know what the word means. A translator would almost have to write a paragraph to explain why he or she is translating it that way. So they don't. They just tell you what happened. But the word here is used a little bit later in Matthew's gospel. When one Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, here's the verb, did what to Jesus? Arrested him? No, Judas didn't arrest him. He handed him over. He handed him over. In Luke's account, in Acts of the Apostles, seven weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Jews were coming back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, they wanted to know what had really happened after they had started home after Passover, and they got Simon to tell them. And Simon Peter said, This Jesus handed over by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Here's the verb, and I think it's very important. What is Matthew trying to say? That John is God's man, and nobody could do bad things to John if God didn't somehow allow it. John is handed over. John is delivered up. And the people have to decide, is John the real thing? Should he be listened to? Should he be sought out? Should one submit to this baptism of John? Or should he be arrested and beheaded? Which is what happened, of course. So John is God's man, and Jesus is God's man in whom God was present in a way never before, never again. But you are also God's daughters and sons. And God still offers up, hands over, meaning that God could perfectly protect us all, but he somehow offers us up in this matter of free will. We get to make decisions. After the tragic events in Connecticut, all these beautiful, innocent children killed, there was an article in Psychology Today. I don't know if you read that magazine. I rarely do. It's sort of pop, help yourself sort of stuff. And here was an article that said human beings just need to get back to their basic good nature. Uh, if we stroke each other, you know, compliment each other, say only nice things to each other, we'll get back to where we really ought to be. Well, Dr. Jane Goodall was having none of that. And she wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal. It was publicized in several different places. She was the Grand Marshal this year at the Rose Bowl Parade, if you watch that. Jane Goodall has been observing chimpanzees in Africa for 53 years. And this is what she wrote. The mammal that is more like humans than any other today is the chimpanzee. And when I first started observing them, I thought these were wonderful, beautiful little animals. But I discovered they could be vicious, mean, cruel. In fact, she says, the average chimpanzee in the wild knows only about 50 other chimpanzees. That's about the extent of it. And I discovered that an average of every seven years, there was a violent murder 
within that group. One murder every seven years in a group of only 50, those odds would not be tolerated in any community in America, she said. Chimpanzees can be cute, fun to watch, even to befriend, but they can also be vicious and cruel. And we have this ability as well. We are not always good, and we're not always bad. Some of us do the good far more often than others who more often do what's bad. So not only does God offer up his sons and daughters so that the others of us have to make decisions about how we will treat them, he also, in a sense, offers us up to free will. We get to make decisions, and those decisions carry real consequences for good or bad. Number two, Matthew inserts into his gospel right here a quotation from his Bible. In his Bible, the 39 scrolls of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures. He looks to this verse because of the phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember when Jesus lived, uh, what we know as Israel today was divided into three parts. The northern part around the lake was called Galilee. The southern part around Jerusalem was called Judea. And right in the center between those two, Samaria. The territory to the north was far more Gentile in percentage of population than was the southernmost, Judea, where Jerusalem and the temple were located. Now, we know Jesus spent most of his time among Jews. But by the time Matthew writes, the movement has become far more Gentile, meaning non-Jews, the ethnics. And so Matthew has found this place in the scriptures of his people to show that God was very concerned always about non-Jews also, but he points out what they thought about those non-Jews, and that, were, that was that they were people who lived in darkness. In fact, we're often called Gentiles and other sinners. Gentiles and other sinners were called in the Bible because the Gentiles were almost entirely polytheistic, multiple gods. They were heathen. They were pagan. And so these people who lived in a land of great darkness. I want to read you just a little paragraph. This appeared in the Chicago Tribune newspaper on December the 9th, just about six weeks ago. It said, Our earth is degenerate in these latter days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book, and the end of the world is evidently approaching. This was found on an Assyrian clay tablet 5,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago, and God waited another 1,000 years 
to find an old man and an old woman who lived in Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, Tigris, Euphrates, called Abram and Sarai to found a new people who would trust the one true God. He waited 600 more years before he found the right person named Moses who would listen to him from a burning bush, would feel in his deepest heart God telling him to go back to Egypt and face down Pharaoh, who would finally lead his people through the waters back to the holy mountain where they would receive the Ten Commandments. And it would be another 1,200 years before God would send to the world himself and Jesus of Nazareth. There have always been hard times. There have always been bad people. There have always been good people, too. We have decisions to make. And now, in Epiphany, we realize we Gentiles have big decisions to make. We can choose to honor Israel's God and to follow what he's taught Israel as being true for us as well. And then in Christ Jesus, we believe for us an even clearer picture of the face and the heart of the Almighty. Number three, Matthew then goes on with this quotation to say that light has dawned. Light has dawned, even for the people who've sat in darkness, even for the Gentile world, light has dawned. You know that I read Dr. John Buchanan regularly. He's retired now from Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, but he edits Christian Century Magazine. And every two weeks a new issue comes, and always there's an editorial by Dr. Buchanan. I enjoyed getting to know him very much when he came to do our series 20 years ago, and I feel like in some sense I know him because I've read things from his heart all these years. In December, third week in Advent, his daughter asked him to go to church with her that Sunday. He's retired from his own church. He said, sure. So he went with the daughter and the granddaughter to church, third Sunday in Advent. Now, all these tragic events in Connecticut are sort of on everybody's mind. But not only that, at his daughter's church, the pastor is a 52-year-old woman who had been diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and was already showing enough symptoms that she had decided she really needed to step down from being senior So this congregation was breathing. They were hurting. An associate pastor was preaching that day. And she stood up, noticed that there were children and youth in the sanctuary, and asked, do you remember the primary colors? When you think of red, yellow, don't you think happy thoughts? And when we mention colors like blue, we sometimes think sad. If I were to ask you, what are the kinds of things that make you sad, what would you answer? And she looked specifically at some of these children and youth. It wasn't a huge, big church, and they responded. If their puppy died, if their grandmother died, things that made them sad. 
And she asked the ushers to come and present to every child, every youth, a blue heart. She said, we all experience sometimes a blue heart. But God loves us even in those times. Our parents love us even in those times. Our church, our Sunday school class, these people love us even in those times. So carry your blue heart, if this is right for you right now, and look forward to a red heart, a yellow heart, an orange one that God makes better things come. And Dr. Buchanan said, that's about the best sermon I'd heard in weeks and weeks, he said. Our hearts are sometimes blue. In those moments, maybe we feel the presence of God even more than any other time. But God wants us to be safe, and he wants us to be well, and he grieves with us when things are not going so well. Number four. Matthew has told us already in his gospel the basic sermon of John the baptizer. Repent. Now remember, John didn't preach in Greek. John would have preached in Hebrew or Aramaic. And in those languages, the word for repent is not the same as in Greek. I've told you it's the word sub, and sub means turn or return. It's not so much about being sorry about something, as are you willing to turn your life and go in a different direction? Are you willing to do things differently from the way you've ever done them before? If you do the same old things, the same old ways, you get the same old results. Are you willing to do a new thing, a different thing? Are you willing to let the hands of God turn you and turn you until you're coming right back toward God and the will and purposes of God. I want to visit Les Miserables again for just a moment. Two and a half years ago, Gail and I were again in France. Uh, I do more reading. I try on ideas to Gail, and she helps me decide what we want to do most. Some years ago, I started reading these books that are produced by graduate students of Yale University. Uh, these graduate students who fan out around a good part of the world uh, write their experiences, and they publish them in books called Let's Go. Let's go Germany. Let's go Italy. Let's go France. Let's go England, whatever. So this particular year, I'd been reading and find these students recommending a wide range of experiences. I mean, they recommended that we take a tour and learn how to make Grey Poupon. And so one morning we went and took the tour to learn how to make gray poupon mustard. And it was interesting. It was very interesting. Well, as an American, they said, you need to go to Disneyland Paris and hear Mickey Mouse talking French. It's a new experience. So Gail and I, at our age, with no children, grandchildren with us, we went to Disneyland Paris for two days. And we had a great time. Space Mountain's too fast for me. I'm never doing that again. But... Anyway, we had a good time there. And then we did some really serious museum time. But one of the things Gail wanted to see was the home of Victor Hugo. 
he and his wife had an apartment in Paris for 18 years. But Victor Hugo was living what he wrote in his books. I mean, most authors who write well write about the things they know. He was two years old when Napoleon came to power. When the old kings and queens' heads had been cut off of the guillotine, and now Napoleon was running rampant over Europe. But he died. And then there was an attempt to return to monarchy, and then there was an attempt by one of Napoleon's heirs to reclaim. And so he was going back and forth, and periodically he had these young, bright-eyed people who thought they could change the world, and often they were slaughtered in the streets of Paris. It was a difficult time. And Victor Hugo dared to take a stand on that and finally had to leave Paris, flee the city. He and his wife went to an island off the coast called Guernsey. And after living there for several years, moved to another little island off the coast called Jersey. Before finally nearing death, they got to come back to Paris. And he died in the apartment there where they had lived 18 years, more than 20 years before. If you just go to see the movie or the play and don't read the book, you're going to miss something important. Because in the movie and the play, the bishop has a, an important part, but it passes very quickly. When you read the novel, Victor Hugo gave the bishop 100 pages. His own son, Victor Hugo's son, said to him, Dad, you know all these priests are corrupt. They've sold out to the, to the hierarchy, to the powers. They don't care about the poor. Why write a bishop that seems to care about the poor? And he said, because that's the kind of bishops we need. And I want to write about the kind we need. Interesting that this bishop in the novel lives in a small community whose name comes from Latin. And this Latin word is the word from which we get the word dignity. Dignus. Dignus. Here was a bishop who gave poor people, powerless people, dignity. He didn't give 10% of what he made. He lived on 10 and he gave 90. All his life, he was giving himself for the people in his community. When you've read a hundred pages about him, then it comes as no surprise that when Jean Valjean suddenly ends up at his place and steals five silver settings from the dining table, is arrested not far away, that the bishop not only says he's given him this bag of silver, he tosses in two silver candlesticks as well. You know he'll do it because that's the kind of man he's been his whole life. That's the kind of man he is. He gives people dignity. And Jean Valjean, who's been in hard labor in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, is handed these candlesticks, and the old bishop whispers to him, I've bought you back for God. I've bought you back. God. And Jean Valjean has dignity. He has purpose. He has worth. He has claim 
as a child of God. The light has dawned.